All right. Well, good morning, everyone. That was a lot, wasn't it? A lot of great stuff, a lot of things going on here. Remember, next week is the beginning of our summer semester, kind of the big um, start to summer and everything going on. And so we are having a potluck next Sunday, so make sure you bring some food to share. Main dish and a side, main dish and dessert. That's t- next Sunday. If it's great outside, we'll be outside. If not, we'll be upstairs. Um, so please bring some food to share next Sunday. We always enjoy those. All right, get your Bibles out. Isaiah 58. Um, we've been doing a series around here called Open Your Eyes, and we've been going through this chapter in Isaiah 58. So if you get your Bible, turn to Isaiah 58, or you can follow along on the screen with me, starting in verse 1. It says this, Shout, a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back, a trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And love having me on their side. But they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast I am after a day to show off humility? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting, a fast day that I, God, would like? This is the kind of fast day I'm after. To break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed and cancel debts. What I'm interested in is seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins. If you're generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I'll always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, to rebuild the foundation from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. If you watch your steps on the Sabbath and don't use my holy day for personal advantage, if you treat the Sabbath as a day of joy, God's holy day as a celebration, if you honor it by refusing business as usual, making money, running here and there, then you'll be free to enjoy God. Oh, I'll make you, high, make you ride high and soar above it all. I'll make you feast on the inheritance of your ancestor Jacob. Yes, God says so. There is just so much jam-packed in this chapter that we've been trying to break down over the last couple of weeks. And we started talking about how so many of us, we look at the gospel from the perspective of just this get-me-out-of-hell card for me personally. We end up reducing the gospel to just what's about me. How, what can I get out of this? It becomes so egocentric. But what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks is that the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to preach and to demonstrate, is intended to change and to challenge everything in our fallen world in the here and now, right here today. As a matter of fact, when the disciples were asking Jesus how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. And so this kingdom of God thing is not just something that's for the future. It's not just something uh, that talks about heaven. The kingdom of God is intended to change and to challenge everything here, right now, today, in our world, in your world. That's what the kingdom of God is meant to do, which means the kingdom of God is not meant to be a way for us to leave this world or to escape this world or to isolate ourselves from this world, but the kingdom of God is intended to redeem every aspect of this world. And so what happens if we make the gospel just about ourselves or about heaven, then you're going to have to cut out about one-tenth of all the verses that are in Scripture. A couple weeks ago, I completely unrolled this all the way down because these are all the verses that I cut out of my Bible. And if you take it, unroll this, it's going to go down mostly all the way to, to the end of this aisle here. And that's what happens is if we try to make the gospel just about ourselves, and what you end up having is a Bible that's just reduced. It's, it's All these things are cut out, and you have all these holes in scripture, and it's really tattered, and it's, it's, a lot of pages are, are very um, loosely held together. And that, I think, has become so much of our American gospel. This is how we tend to interact with God, with it's so egocentric here. And so a couple weeks ago, I asked the question, and that question is, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? This is where it starts. Are you actually willing to be open to God's will, not the American mentality, not your will, not your parents' will, but actually God's will for your life. If you're able to answer an honest yes to that question, then the next series of questions have to do with that. Because once we say yes to that, then the next question is, okay, well, what is God's will for my life? If I'm going to be open to God's will for my life, then what is God's will for my life? What does God expect of me? And when you think about it, this is where so many of us get stuck. But the reality is God's expectations are, for us are not as mysterious and difficult to understand as you might think. As a matter of fact, they're very clearly etched in page after page after scripture, in the Scriptures, and they really can be summed up in three words. And those three words are compassion, mercy, and justice. Compassion, mercy, and justice. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it says, "'He has shown you, O man, what is good.'" And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, God's expectations of us centers around his compassion and his mercy towards people and his zeal for justice. And so what God has for you, in other words, his will for you, will always have something to do with compassion, mercy, and justice. But here's the thing. Once you know that this is God's expectations for you, there tends to be a gap that every one of us have to contend with. And this gap is between our knowledge and our awareness of someone's needs and our actual fulfilling and meeting those needs. And that gap is our indifference. Our indifference keeps us stuck between this awareness of needs and are actually fulfilling those needs. That's, that gap is filled by our indifference. Look at, at this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. It says, The way we know we've been transferred from life to death is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer, and you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. 
This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love, let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. Now, how many of you remember the greatest commandment in the Bible? Let me see your hands. What's the greatest commandment in the Bible? Yes, that's the greatest commandment. When Jesus was asked this question in Matthew 22, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. So that's the greatest commandment in Scripture. The second greatest commandment is what? Yeah, verse 39, Jesus said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so when you think about it, these are the number one and the number two purposes for your life. Your number one purpose in life is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's your number one purpose. Your number two purpose is to love your neighbors as yourself. So let me ask you a question. How are you doing? How are you doing in loving God? If this is your number one purpose, then how are you doing? Are you fulfilling your number one purpose? In your sermon notes, I put a little scale there. On a scale from one to 10, I want you to take a second here and just evaluate yourself. How are you doing? One, being failing miserably. 10, being perfect at this. How are you doing in fulfilling your purpose in loving God? Go ahead and give yourself a score on that, that scale right there on your sermon notes. And then let me ask you a second question. How are you doing in your second purpose? If these are our two purposes, number one, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, that's your number one purpose, and your number two purpose is to love your neighbor as yourself, how are you doing with that? How are you doing with loving your neighbor as yourself? Again, on your piece of paper, give yourself a score on a scale from one to ten. One, you're failing miserably. Ten, you're perfect at this. Score yourself on how you're doing in loving your neighbors. Now look at this again in, verse, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, it says, The way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. This is how we've come to understand experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. And so if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears and you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. Now look at what he's saying here. Because this is so interesting. I think really cuts through all the religious rhetoric that I think so many of us can get stuck with. Because notice what he's talking about. Because no matter how you scored yourself in loving God, it's a subjective test. Loving God... You, what you scored yourself on is a subjective test, but loving your neighbor is an objective test that reveals actually how well you're doing in loving, in loving God. In other words, the score that you gave yourself for loving your neighbor really is the correct score for how you're doing in loving God. The problem for so many of us 
is that we get stuck in this self-deception, in this religious world, and we're not really living in God's reality. And I want to share a story here this morning because I learned this one the hard way. Courtney and I both learned this the hard way. When we lived in Colorado Springs, uh, we had first, when we first got married, um, this, we kind of came in, in really, this came really kind of central for both of us. And as newlywed couples, you know, for all of you who remember or are newlyweds, you know how this is, is that so much of the beginning is trying to figure out how to live life together and how to put your two independent lives and put them together and how to think as one, move as one, respond as one. And our spiritual lives are no different. And that's what was going on with us. Well, this one day, Courtney went and got her hair cut, and when she came back, she had this huge story to tell because she was still just a little bit trembling because the whole time that she was getting her hair cut, the lady who was cutting her hair cried the entire time. Now, you need to know something about my wife. She is very compassionate, but if you infringe upon her, her feeling comfortable, her compassion gets sidelined just a little bit. All she could think of while this lady was cutting her hair was she's going to walk out with some crazy haircut because how could she see what she was doing while she was cutting her hair? But here's the thing. This lady's name is Marianne, and she was the owner of this uh, shop. And when we moved into the area, she just started this shop. She was the owner and one of the stylists as well. And so we were one of the first clients there. And over the next six years, both Courtney and I, we went to the same person, Marianne. And so we kind of built this relationship. She was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we had all these conversations going on while we were getting our hair cut. But in this situation, Mary, the reason why Marianne was crying was because her, her husband's um, dad was dying. And her husband had flown to be with her dad in the last couple of days of his life. And, and so she was just heartbroken by all of this. But because they had they'd gone through already a whole list of tragedies um, at the beginning of that year. And they'd spent a lot of money traveling back and forth amongst family in different situations. And they just didn't have the financial resources for her to go back to be with her father-in-law and to be there for the funeral. And so she was just, she was devastated over all of this. Well, as Courtney was driving home and as she finally got herself settled down for the fact that her hair was okay, <laughs> she felt the compassion of God come on her heart about doing something to help Mary Ann. And so she immediately, when she got home, she looked at our frequent flyer numbers to see if we would have enough um, numbers there to be able to buy a ticket, get a ticket for her and send her back um, so she could be with her father-in-law and with her husband there. And so when I came home, she was already in process with this. And, she, um, and so we both looked at this and yeah, we had enough um, frequent file numbers to be able to do this. We even called the airlines to see what it would do to, get a, uh, to put somebody else on this so that we could get a ticket for her to go. Well, unfortunately, because it needed to be done immediately, all the normal frequent flyer tickets that were already gone. And so in order to do it, we were going to have to do double mileage. You know how that works? And so the more we talked about this, the more we realized we were willing to do just our normal regular ones, but to do it double all of a sudden that put us on a different track. And to, I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you here that we ended up not doing anything for Marianne. Think about this. We had the means, we had the, we had the miles. We even had the money to be able to give her a ticket. But we decided not to give her a ticket. The cost was too much. We had the means to do something and we just made the decision not to do that. Look at that scripture again in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. 
It says, if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. Unknowingly, this is what was going on. We didn't realize this was going on at the time, but this is exactly what was happening. But here's what I began to realize, that if this is true, if I don't step in when I have the means to help somebody, and if that causes God's love to disappear, then the opposite must be true as well. When I see a need and I step in and I meet that need, then now all of a sudden it causes God's love to appear and it causes God's love to be made known. And that's exactly what ended up happening with Marianne. We went on with kind of the rest of our lives. And for the next two weeks, I didn't think about it again. But two weeks, about two weeks after that decision that we weren't going to do anything back, I was driving home from church and I felt the Holy Spirit bring it back up in my heart. Don't you hate how he does that? <laughs> I completely disregarded. It was done. It was, it was out of my head. But as I was driving back, he, began, he, he brought it back to my memory, and he began talking to me about my selfishness and how my selfishness caused this, this whole thing that God was wanting to do through us to stop. And I could feel that we had grieved the Holy Spirit. And so when Courtney and I got together that evening, we talked about this and realized, boy, we had missed God. And we repented and began to talk about what could we do, what were we supposed to do. And we felt like that we were supposed to call Marianne and to share the story and to apologize for being disobedient. God had spoken to us about helping that situation and to apologize for missing it and to repent before her. But not just that. We also felt like we were supposed to do something else. We knew the difficulties she'd been having throughout the course of the year. And so we said, we know we missed it the first time, but if there's any way that you could do this, we'd like to give you a ticket anywhere in the United States, wherever you want to go. We'd encourage you to go on vacation with her husband or do something fun. Just go, and we'll provide the, the plane ticket for you to be able to go. Well, she immediately knew what she wanted to do, and we ended up get, giving her a ticket to go back to her nephew's wedding back home. Two weeks later, Courtney had another hair appointment, and so she went back in, and uh, Marianne was so excited to be able to have a face-to-face -face because of what had transpired during those short weeks that we hadn't been in conversation. Because as soon as, as soon as Courtney shared this whole story, what was going on, Marianne knew exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to go back to um, her hometown where her nephew was getting married. She had raised her nephew. He was like a son to her. But because of all the difficulties and the financial stress that happened, she had already communicated to her nephew that she wasn't going to be able to go to his wedding. It devastated her. It devastated him. But there just wasn't a solution there. And so she called him, and her nephew wasn't a believer, didn't know God at all. As a matter of fact, none of, none of Marianne's family really did know God as well e either. And so um, she began to explain to her nephew who didn't know God that this pastor and his wife had come in and said that we want to give you a ticket to go in. And she shared the whole story with her nephew, and it spread amongst all of her family members. And Marianne said it's one of the most incredible things she's ever seen because they could never talk about God with her family. Because so many of them were non-believers, it was a very hostile, very difficult conversations to have. But this opened the door for them to be able to talk about God amongst it. And she said it was just amazing to see the conversations that they were now able to have with all their family members just because of the silly plane ticket. 
But not only that, as a result of all the tragedies that had happened over the past year, Marianne had dipped into depression, and she had just darkness, and uh, her soul was, was just clouding everything, and she was questioning, God, where are you in all of this? And she was just lost in this depression. But she said when, when Courtney called her, she said immediately something miraculous happened in her heart, and joy entered her soul again. And she could feel just the love of God coming and surrounding her. She said, See, I, I felt like I've been on cloud nine ever since. And you know what? It didn't stop there either because, because when, when Courtney called her, um, she was at, at the salon. And so she was, and because she was the owner, she was the one that answers the phones. And, and so all the stylists and their customers in there witnessed her side of the story of what was going on on the phone. And so when she got off the phone, Marianne was crying profusely. And so all of a sudden, everybody, everybody in, the, in the salon wanted to know what was going on. And so they asked, well, what, what happened? What went on? So she was able to share the whole story with her stylist and the customers that were in there at the same time. And she said, she said for weeks, it was, the, it was the conversation back in the, the break room with all of her stylists. They were asking all these questions. How, how is this possible? I couldn't, couldn't believe it. Is God really real? I mean, think about that, folks. A plane ticket, giving a plane ticket to a person in need opened the door for the love of God to appear, and it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. First John, again, look at that scripture. It says, if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but you turn a cold shoulder and do nothing... What happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. See, this gap of indifference that's between our awareness of these needs and are actually fulfilling these needs, this gap of indifference, it's fueled by our self-centeredness. Our self-centeredness fuels this gap of indifference that causes us to not move, that causes us to not act when we see needs. Dr. Ralph Wilson in his book, Jesus Walks, said it this way. He said, love, sympathy, and mercy are motivated by the need of another, while withholding mercy is essentially an act of selfishness or self-protection. The problem, though, for so many of us is that we are unwilling to admit how selfish we really are. But I tell you, it's in the midst of relationship that we discover our selfishness. That's what was revealed in this relationship for Courtney and myself with Mary Ann as we were interacting with her. And these needs came up. We, be, we saw firsthand how selfish we had become. And that's what relationships do. When you're in close connection with people, you begin to see how selfish you are. I say this all the time to young couples who are getting married. That God's design for marriage is not to make you happy. But God's design for marriage is to make you holy. Because very quickly in marriage, you'll discover how selfish you are, how unforgiving you are, how impatient you are. That's what happens when we start getting close connection with other people. Relationships reveal those things. Look at how Jesus described this in Luke 10, verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, 
He felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil, wine, and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. If you're taking notes, I want you to underline that word mercy. That word mercy in the original Greek language is the word el eos, which means the emotion roused by contact with an affliction which comes undeservedly on someone else. Now, think about this, because I think this is really interesting. Because it's only when we intentionally, proactively put ourselves around people who are in need, people who have issues, people who are are struggling, the poor, the, the down and out, the forgotten, the marginalized. It's only when we put ourselves around people who are hurting that this emotion of mercy starts coming out of us. Look at how the Apostle Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. It says, test yourselves to make sure you are solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourself regular checkups. You need first-town evidence, not mere hearsay, that Jesus Christ is in you. Test it out. Isn't that interesting? Apostle Paul describes where we're actually supposed to test ourselves to see if the reality of Jesus Christ is in us. In other words, we can so deceive ourselves and call ourselves Christian and the reality not really be there. This test, however, can only be performed in the, in the midst of the interaction of relationships. I mean, think about this. Because how else can you test yourself to see if you're patient without being bugged by somebody else to the point that you're so frustrated with them that you lash out? How else can you tell if there's goodness and kindness in you unless you're dealing with difficult people? How else can you discover that mercy is really a part of you outside of relationships? I mean, do you really think that it's you being kind and merciful to your plant or to your dog that really matters to God? Or is it being kind and being showing mercy to your next-door neighbor or to the barista of your favorite coffee shop? That's what really matters. See, folks, we understand from the gospel that our righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through any way else. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So your righteousness or your right standing with God only comes through your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about doing good works. It's not about you being humanitarian or, or compassionate or merciful or anything. That, our righteousness doesn't come this way. Our righteousness only comes through our relationship with Jesus Christ. But the issue here is that righteousness is un, it's really unproven until it's refined and, and demonstrated in the midst of relationships. That's the only way that it's shown is in the midst of our relationships. And so there's no way to verify God's grace working in you outside of being in relationship with other people. There's no way to demonstrate godliness without being, having this connection with other people. And it's in this interaction, the interaction with the forgotten and the poor and the marginalized, those who are afflicted, those that Jesus calls the least of these. It's in that interaction that we find the reality or the lack of thereof of our love for God. 
That's where it gets exposed. Remember, Elias, mercy is the emotion that's roused by contact with an affliction which comes undeservedly on someone else. And so it's only when I have contact with the needs of others that this God-given emotion of mercy comes out of us. And remember, mercy is God's will for your life. Mercy is God's expectation for us. But mercy, it only comes out of us when we're in contact with other needs of people around us, which means you and I, we have to intentionally put ourselves in situations and around people who have needs. Otherwise, indifference just takes over. Otherwise, selfishness just takes over and it consumes us. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 5, verse 25. He says, since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold to it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implication in every detail of our lives. Folks, this is what we're called to. And this is why we can't just play church. This is why we can't just call ourselves Christians and live our lives just like everybody else does. We can't just, this is why we can't just keep making the gospel of Jesus Christ so egocentric, just about me and what I can get out of it. And this is why we have to shake ourselves from this indifference. This is why we have to shake ourselves from this selfishness, this self-centeredness. Again, Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. That's God's expectations of us. But I'm telling you, folks, we only discover this through the interaction of the needs when we're around the needs of others. That's where it's, it's viewed. That's where we see the reality coming out in our lives. And so I want to encourage you with a couple of things here this morning. Number one, find ways to connect with people who have needs. Intentionally, find ways to put yourself around people who have needs. Needs. It's, again, it's so easy to isolate ourselves, but intentionally find ways to put yourself around people who have needs. Number two, walk slowly in the crowd. You know what I'm talking about here? So many of us were so driven from point A to point B that we're completely unaware of what's going on around us. And so you're, you're on a mission to go to H-E-B, H-E-B to get your groceries. And so you quickly get there, you know, yelling at every person on 71 as you're driving there. You finally get a parking spot. You hurry in, completely unaware of the lady whose car is broken down in the parking lot. And you're completely unaware of her because you're, you're intent on getting your groceries and getting home because you want to beat the crowd. So you're hurrying in, and you start with your list, start looking at your list, all the things you need to get done. And you're busy putting your groceries in and all the food in your basket, and you're unaware of this lady who's sitting beside the bread aisle who's crying because she just got off the phone with somebody in a devastating situation. You're completely unaware because you're busy just getting your stuff. And you go to get, 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 get your groceries pay, paid for and you get in your car and you come home. We're so intent on getting from point A to B. Walk slowly through the crowd. Let your eyes look as you're walking to see people, to see people, to open your eyes. And then number three, look for ways to help people. <laughs> Actually, look for ways. You know, my dad, who's not a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination, he carries a $100 bill in his wallet at all times. You know why? That $100 bill is there to give to somebody. And so he looks constantly, every single day of his life, he looks for the prompting of the Holy Spirit 
to lead him to give that $100 bill to somebody. He may go days or weeks or months before he gives it, but he's always looking. This is what I'm talking about. Actually look for ways to help people. Remember, Apostle John says, 1 John 3, 17, if you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. In your sermon handouts, I wrote these words. It's there at the bottom. Today, from Travis and Burnett and Hayes counties, people will go to heaven, and people will go to hell. The percentage of people going to heaven and the percentage of people going to hell today is determined by how well you did your job yesterday. If you remember heaven today, it will help someone else avoid hell tomorrow. Folks, the reason why the reason why we talk about this, the reason why we push, the reason why we study, the reason why it's so important to love others is because heaven is real, and so is hell. And we are to make a difference. I said this at the beginning when we started this series. I'm not really sure what all the conclusion is to all of this. I don't want to project that on you, but here's what I've loved. I've loved receiving your emails of what God is stirring in your heart already as a result of this series. I love how you're, you're beginning to feel God puts thoughts and ideas in your own heart of what this means for you personally. I love the stories of your families getting together and talking about with parents, talking with their kids. How can we do this? How can we reach out? How can we be a blessing to other people? How can we meet needs of us? I love hearing it because that's what it's all about, folks. The mistake is to think that the church is supposed to do something. But we are the church. This is not a corporate thing. Yes, we will do some things. Mark my words. We'll do some things together. We'll cooperate together. We'll partner together as a local church, but also with one chapel in Austin and one chapel in Kyle, and we'll partner together with other churches in Lake Travis area to, be, to pull our resources together to help others. Yes, but I don't want you to forget that this is about you and this is about me responding to what God is doing and what he is saying. We have a part. We are to make a difference. And so if you would, I want you to just close your eyes here this morning. Because I want you to just let this kind of stir in your own heart and what God might even be wanting to speak to you here today. Maybe for you, some of the things I've said this morning are resonating because maybe you, you have a Marianne in your life. And maybe you've done exactly what Courtney and I did and you saw the need, but... For whatever reason, you stop short. And maybe God's bringing that situation back to mind for you. And he's beginning to speak to you just as he did to me and Courtney about your own selfishness or your own self-centeredness. But right here, instead of regret, repent. And listen to what the Holy Spirit may drop anew and afresh in your heart today for that situation. Maybe for you, you're you're beginning to pick up on that there is this self-centeredness, there is this egocentric way about how I'm living my life and you're realizing just the whole self-centeredness of this and how selfish maybe you've become and, and maybe you're walking so fast through life that you're unaware of the people around you and maybe God just bringing your, these things to your attention right here and right now, just, just stop right here and listen to what the Holy Spirit might speak to you in this moment 
at this point in your life. And just be quick. If he brings things up, just be, it's not about regret, it's about repenting. And just repent if you need to repent. And, and maybe it's just, maybe for you, it's making yourself available again. Available to what God might want to do through you today, through the rest of this week, and maybe thoughts of what he's stirring inside of you for you individually, but maybe as well for you as a family, what that might be. And so, Father, I pray for every one of us here this morning that, God, we would live our lives differently, that our lives are not our own, that, God, that we would just settle that issue Father, we recognize that you are here and your presence is here. And I'm, God, I'm so grateful of how you take care of us individually. I'm so grateful for how you do that to us just so specifically. But as well, God, we know that you have us here in this world to be your arms outstretched, to be your hands, to be your feet, and to be your voice to a world who does not know you. And so, Father, I pray for every one of us here this morning, that, God, that you would stir something inside of us, even here in these last minutes of, of the service. And we're going to take communion here together. It's just kind of our ending of us, our service here this morning. And, and I want you to just let this continue just to be part of your own worship and your own surrender as you come to the altar and, and let God just continue to work some things inside of your heart. There are two stations in front of here, and, and you don't have to be a member here of this church to participate here in communion. This is something that Jesus sets for us, and, and so we're going to uh, start with the front row and go all the way back, and you're going to exit from your right, and you'll look around, you'll take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice, and then go ahead and take it back. And just have this moment as your own altar before God, and let him just stir in your heart what he would want to speak to you. Let's do this together in worship. have people up front here to pray with you, whatever's going on in your life. I say this every Sunday, that God never intended for you to do this by yourself. God put us in community. We need to be in relationship with other people. And so these men and women will stay down here. If there's anything going on, you'd like somebody to pray with you, to agree with you, to stand beside you, and whatever you're walking through, please take time to come out here and just ask for somebody to pray with you. They'll, they'll be here um, for quite a while after the end of this service. Also, again, if you're new here, we have gumbo upstairs for you. Please, 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 please be our guest. Stick around. If you've not come to a welcome party yet, please do that. It'll be fun. A little Cajun for you and our Texas blood here. So let me just seek a blessing over you as we finish here this morning. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you upstairs for those of you who are sticking around.